I would like to begin this episode by acknowledging that I am located in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, and I am privileged and honored to live and learn on the unceded, unsurrendered territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation. Hello, and welcome to Trench Leadership, a podcast from the front. Trench Leadership is a proud supporter of the Concussion Legacy Foundation for their leadership in advancing the study, treatment, and prevention of brain trauma for athletes, veterans, and other at-risk groups. Trench Leadership, a podcast from the front, is a show for emerging leaders of all professions that offers advice, inspiration, and practical tools from a diverse breadth of leaders who have made the mistakes, had the triumphs, and are still learning along the way. Here's your host, Simon Cardinal. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Trench Leadership, a podcast from the front. We hear a lot about how important it is for leaders to understand workplace culture so that leaders can better understand how to connect to their teams. And we hear this all the time. And the reason we hear this all the time is because it's true. And so in this episode, I'll be speaking with Chris Clues, a speaker, author, and 80s pop culture guru, and he'll use his deep knowledge of the 80s to help emerging leaders understand today's workplace culture. Now, I know no one ever wants to hear me talk, so I'm going to try and be quiet and introduce Chris. Hey, Chris, how's it going today? Great, Simon. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Um, before we jump in, as I always tell people who are independent podcasters who have me as guests on their show, thank you so much for the megaphone. Uh, it's very easy to sit in this seat here and be a guest. Uh, I know the work that you do behind the scenes and it's all on you or maybe one other person together with you that's editing this thing, producing it, putting it together. And it's a lot of work. And so I thank you for giving me the megaphone today. Well, well I, I really appreciate that nod. It, it is a fair amount of work. And so far right now, my, my podcast is a team of one. Uh, me. So I really do appreciate that. And that, that acknowledgement. Thank you so much. And of course, yeah, thanks it. for off. Oh, exactly. And of course, thanks for coming out for this today. I know you're very busy. You have a lot going on. And so taking the time to speak with us, it, it's cherished. Before we get going into this, uh, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, how you got to this point of us speaking? Sure. Um, well, I mean, I was born and raised and I still live in a blockbuster, as you can see. For those of you that are watching the video, no, it's not true, but I actually, I would say that I was raised in a blockbuster to a certain extent. Uh, <laughs> it, is, it is an excellent video. It is, it is an excellent quality photo. I, you're, you, you could easily convince people. I actually was lucky enough to visit the last blockbuster on earth in Bend, Oregon uh, back in 2019. And I took a lot of pictures and this was a picture I took inside and uh, never really realizing that it was going to be something that I was going to need. Uh, when COVID hit in March of 2020 and everything that I was doing from a speaking perspective went virtual and I had to find a background that's that fit my content and well this is it so um, I can reach back here and grab Rescue Dawn somewhere around here I think um, so, <laughs> yeah uh, yeah so a little about me I uh, actually was in marketing for uh, about 20 plus years and um, still do I still am in marketing today um, but it is just a part Part of what I do. And I, let's say, let's go back a couple of years. I was in a job that just kind of wasn't working out for me, 47 years old in a marketing job that wasn't working out. I think we've all been there, right? We've all been in that position where you, you're just not feeling it for a particular job. And uh, I went home and as I often do, I had a self-pity party of one uh, because you know, there's no one else to complain to except myself. So that's what I do. And uh, I was laying on the couch and I was watching The Breakfast Club for the 150th time. And uh, Bender says something that never really, 
I never really paid much attention to until this moment. Bender said, screws fall out all the time. The world's an imperfect place. And I kind of sat up and I thought, I'm in an imperfect place. My screws have fallen out. And it really resonated with me. And here I am again at 47 years old. And I've, I've had this, you know, this decent marketing career. And I'm thinking, is this all there is for me? That on my gravestone, it's going to say he was a pretty good marketing guy. I, I really felt like there was something else out there for me. I just didn't know what it was. And this was the light bulb, this moment where he said, screws fall out all the time. The world's an imperfect place. And I, I thought, you know, I could take these screws that have fallen out and I could put them back in exactly the way they were and keep going down this same path. You know, as, as Henry David Thoreau said, who's not an 80s pop culture icon, maybe 1840s, somewhere around there, <laughs> 1830s. Um, he said the massive, uh, what's that? I say that there's an eight in there. <laughs> there's an eight in there. Yes. He said the mass of men, we'll call that today people, the mass of people lead lives of quiet desperation. Now, he said this before the Industrial Revolution. He said it before people were sitting at desks and in cubicles. He was already recognizing this idea of living a life of quiet desperation. And I realized I was kind of doing that as well. I was very happy in my life, my personal life, my, my social life, my work life. But it was a little bit of a quiet desperation. So I decided those screws that have fallen out, that I wasn't just going to put them back in the way they were. I could have gotten a whole new set of screws and put them in the same door frame, but I decided to build a whole new door frame, a whole new door, get a whole new set of screws and walk out that door to a brand new journey, a brand new career. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to do yet, but I knew I was going to do something. And I took this idea of the Breakfast Club teaching us about problem solving. And I wrote an article on LinkedIn. Uh, and I said, hey, this is what, you know, what does the Breakfast Club teach us about problem solving? And I woke up the next day to find that all of these people had viewed it and were liking it from all over the world. And I was shocked. I couldn't believe it because it was really more therapy for me, just kind of getting it out there. So I wrote another one on Ferris Bueller and work-life balance, and it did equally well. And I thought, maybe I have something here. You know, I don't know much, but I do know quite a bit about 80s pop culture. And I did understand the business world from spending time in it. So I decided to write a book, a little book about what 80s pop culture teaches us about today's workplace. And I took these movies, including The Breakfast Club, 10 of them, and uh, I found the lessons in them for our, our workplace and for our lives. Um, the book is about 80 pages. The first one was really short. Uh, I would say that if you are a fan of Spencer's Gifts stores from back in the day. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you got, yeah. Yeah. You remember those, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. <laughs> yeah. You got the little prank things in there. And, uh, you know, it would have gone on the shelf at Spencer's Gifts, maybe next to Truly Tasteless Joke Books, not, not because of the content, but because of the size and, and, and scope. Uh, my friend who's a great designer helped me self-publish it. Neither of us had done that before. Um, by the way, just for everybody out there, the self-publishing is the great equalizer. If you're thinking about writing a book, write it. You don't have to worry about going to a big publisher and having them turn you down time after time after time. You can go self-publish your book today. So I would encourage you, listen, if I can do it, anyone can. Believe me, I'm just a big knucklehead. And we're going to get into that in a little bit. <laughs> uh, I built a website and positioned myself as a speaker on the topic. Had never done that before. But I felt like uh, I wanted to do this for a living. And I had to figure out how to do that. I still had a full-time job as uh, the head of marketing for a division of DHL at the time. And I was doing this at night and on the weekends and on the side. And uh, I, I built the website. People started hiring me as a speaker. So I had to figure out what I was going to do with the content. Wrote a second book, uh, had a small publisher for that second book that is also under the same name. Uh, and it's my series of books, What 80s Pop Culture Teaches Us About Today's Workplace. 
the small publisher then um, got that book out and what helped me market it, which was fantastic. And I got a speaking agent and I started to then get speaking gigs. So here I am sitting in front of you today, an author and a speaker and working on a third book. Uh, and I just could not be happier. I absolutely love what I'm doing. Passion, it has to be in everything we do when we're leading people, when we're leading our own lives without that passion, it, it really limits what we can, what we're willing to see around us. And so congratulations for recognizing that you were in that desperation and, and willing to do something to be brave enough to go and do that. So well done. I, I appreciate it. You know, you mentioned passion and uh, it's a very real thing. A lot, most of us have it in some way, shape or form. We have a passion for something. Uh, Johnny Cade in the outsiders, great movie, great book said, you still have a lot of time to make yourself be what you want. And that also resonated with me at 47 years old. I wasn't a 25-year-old entrepreneur, even a 35-year-old entrepreneur. At 47 years old, I decided to leave all of this behind and go for it, uh, 48 actually. And um, you still have a lot of time to make yourself be what you want. And what I tell people is, if you're, you, we have this valuable free time, all of us, and, and it's limited for most of us. If you find that valuable free time being captured uh, by something, the same interest, the same passion that you have, whatever it is, and you're finding all that free time is being gobbled up by the same thing, then maybe you should look at it and say, hey, is there something that I can do with this? I love what I'm doing because typically with, we do things we love with our free time. I love what I'm doing with my free time. Maybe I can turn it into something. And that's the idea of go create you. You know, you still have a lot of time to make yourself be what you want. It doesn't matter that this whole, whole idea of you have to be 20 in your 20s and 30s to go pursue something nonsense. In fact, I think it's better you're better off when you're in your late 40s and 50s because you got that you have that experience behind you. You understand uh, the world a little bit better. You understand the business world a little bit better, and you understand yourself a little bit better and what you love to do. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things that we're going to talk about today is understanding the workplace culture that we find ourselves in and how emerging leaders can can position themselves in such a way using the 80s pop culture to understand where we are today because things tend to be very cyclical in their nature. So do you have any thoughts on on how an emerging leader could understand the workplace culture today? What what are your views on the workplace culture today? Hit us. Well, my my views are all through the lens of 80s movies and 80s pop culture. So I'll give you, uh, if it's cool, I'll give you a couple examples of uh, leadership lessons from um, some great 80s movies. And uh, I'll also give you one from an 80s musician that I absolutely love. So we'll start with a movie that if I said to you, if I kind of posed it in a Jeopardy question, uh, the title of this 1988 Eddie Murphy film is also the title of a Neil Diamond song. Hmm. I, I... I don't, I don't know a lot of Neil Diamond songs. I have to admit that. So I, I pass. <laughs> I'm a huge Neil fan. So yeah. Well, I enjoy his music. I just, I'm terrible at the names of songs. So <laughs> what is coming to America? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Okay. I'm not going to sing it, but you know, they're coming to America today. Yeah. That one. So, gotcha. <laughs> uh, Fantastic. Yeah. so uh, coming to America, which I think is, is almost the perfect comedy. Uh, 1987, actually, 87, 88. Uh, I could have my date wrong, my year wrong, 87 or 88. So I, th I think it is the perfect comedy. And uh, for those of you that haven't seen it, the basic premise is that Prince Akeem, played by Eddie Murphy, he is the prince in his country of Zamunda. He's the heir to the throne. Uh, he has done, by the way, nothing to earn that except to be born into royalty. And he, he does recognize that. His best friend, Semi, played by Arsenio Hall, 
And uh, at one point early in the movie, we see that they are introducing him to a potential bride for him, for his, you know, his, his future queen. And uh, he wants to know her. So he's asking her questions. What do you like? And she says, whatever you like. And he says, what, you know, what kind of food do you like? Whatever food you like, what music do you like? Whatever music you like. And he doesn't like this. He really wants somebody to be independent. He wants them to be an individual. And of course he wants them to like and love him for him, not because of the fact that he's a prince. So he does recognize at this point in his life that he is not going to find his true love uh, in his country of Zamunda, because again, everybody knows his position. So he and his best friend, Semi, go to the place that they think he can find his queen, which is Queens, New York. And uh, off they go to Queens, New York. And what does he do? He, he strips himself of all his royal garb. He gets a very modest, uh, we would call it, I mean, modest is, uh, I guess we could say it's a, a very um, dilapidated apartment. And uh, he gets a job at a fast food restaurant, McDowell's, an entry level job sweeping the floors and taking out the garbage. And he says something in that moment. Again, this was another throwaway line in the movie that I think a lot of people wouldn't think of when you think of coming to America and all the great lines and scenes, you don't think of this one, but it really jumped out to me. And the, and the line he says is when you think of garbage, think of Akeem. And I thought it was just great that this idea that this prince from his, this country of Zamunda would take this entry level job in a fast food restaurant and be proud of what he was doing. When you think of garbage, think of Akeem. And this is, this is an incredible line and it's an incredible lesson in leadership. Because if we go back to when he was in his country of Zamunda as the prince, what did we see? Everybody just wanted to please him because of his position, right? And as we get into the movie and, and people find out later on that he's a prince, they find out in Queens that he's actually a prince, they react a little bit differently to him. And so because he's earned some credibility, from taking that entry level position and never telling anybody throughout the movie that he's a prince. So the lesson that he teaches us is that unearned leadership creates pleasers and earned leadership creates believers. I think this is a really important lesson because how many of us out there have worked under a leader that did not earn their position? Quite a few. I know I have. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was in the military. So yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and it's, listen, it's not great. Uh, it's not great for them and it's not great for you because if you haven't earned your leadership, leadership position, then you're not really sure how to act like a leader. And in return, people who you are supposed to be leading, aren't sure if they should be following you. What happens is you create yes people. We've heard this before because most people who haven't earned their leadership position don't want to be challenged. And so everybody says, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. They're yes people, whatever you want. Uh, that's what we get from unearned leadership. Earned leadership creates believers. When I can see the path that you've taken to your leadership position, then you are credible in my eyes and I'll believe you and I'll follow you. I'll follow you wherever you want me to go because you have shown that track, track record of earning this leadership position. And a, and a bigger lesson here is about employee retention for organizations. If you work for an organization where nobody has earned their leadership position, how long are you going to stay? You know, you, you, you look at that and you think, no matter how hard I work, no matter how, how good I do, ultimately, it's not really going to matter because people get leadership positions for different reasons in this company other than actually producing or doing good work or, or you know, showing that they're more than capable uh, than anybody else of, of having that position. So when I'm an employee and I see that people have earned their leadership position, then I may tend to stay a little bit longer and give it a shot 
because I can see a path for myself as well. So there's an employee retention message there as well, how important it is to have leaders who have earned that leadership position. And one of the things that I've seen popped up a few times in different episodes is the importance of leaders to understand what motivates employees and what's motivating them to want to stay with a company and to become a leader and represent the company as a leader. And one of those things is one of the, the common factors right now is, is that employees, they want to feel engaged. They want to feel that the company isn't only interested in making money or whatever the goal happens to be, but more about social awareness and understanding that the person is actually being heard. And that's one of the things that you've heard you were mentioning is the need to earn that right to have that leadership role placed upon people. And, and that's important. It's an important message for people to realize. Yeah. And I think too, you know, um, trading places, which was a great, uh, another great comedy from the eighties with Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. And there's a great scene in there where Eddie Murphy's character is going to be introduced to this board um, for the first time of this financial company. And he's very nervous because he, he doesn't know what to expect. He doesn't know if he's good enough. And he's standing there with the butler. And he says to the butler, what, what, if, I'm, what if I'm not good enough? You know, what if they don't like me? What if I'm not good enough? And uh, the butler says, you know, just be yourself. They can't take that away from you. And I think that's a really important lesson because ultimately uh, Eddie Murphy's character in Trading Places was very good at what he did. And that to your back to your point about leadership and organizations, when he questioned himself, he taught us the difference between arrogance and confidence in that arrogant people question others and confident people question themselves. And I think that's a really important part, quality and leaders as well, and leadership as well. And I do think that that ties back. I think when you haven't earned your leadership position, you tend to question others. When you have earned your leadership position, you tend to question yourself. And that's the difference between confidence and arrogance, I think. So that all does tie back together. Oh, very much so. And, and one of the other popular things to discuss lately is the, the concept of imposter syndrome. You know, we, we've yeah. been speaking about that for, we not you and I, but like everyone in, in these types of realms talks about imposter syndrome at some point in time. I have an episode dedicated to discuss, discussing that because it's an important thing for people to understand that we're not alone. And, and that's how I... I kind of look at a lot of the discussions is to remind ourselves that we're not alone, that we're going to make mistakes. And that's okay because in these driven organizations, these, you know, uh, product driven organizations or achievement driven organizations, the, one of the big things is to achieve, to be perfect in a perfect world to do that. But of course there's no such thing as a perfect world and it's tough. It's tough to remind ourselves, especially when we're new leaders, that it's okay to make a mistake, that it's okay to be yourself. And if being yourself means errors happen along the way, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And um, you know, the imposter syndrome, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because I do believe that if you have imposter syndrome, chances are you're, you are in exactly the right position. Uh, that's, that's again, between confidence and arrogance, you can have imposter syndrome and still be a confident person. If you, if you are questioning yourself, you are probably exactly in the position that you should be. Uh, if you're questioning others, then you're probably not. Oh, that, that is a really great point. Uh, that's fantastic. Thank you very much for that. While we're talking about those types of things and, and, you know, as a, as a leader is moving on and they're trying to figure out their, their different things they need to do. One of the things you and I discussed earlier was the understanding, the importance to understand the audience that you're with. So you need to understand your team. 
you have any type of advice on that at all? I do. I do actually. Um, before we jump to that one, if I could just throw one more in there about the uh, staying on that leadership topic that we were just talking about, if it's cool with you. Yeah, of course, please, please do. All right. Because I love this one and I got, I, I always want to talk about this one because it, it comes from my favorite musician uh, of all time, a guy who loved the color purple, if that gives anybody an idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Think about mm-hmm. that for a second. Who could yeah, that be? I think, I think I've got this one. <laughs> yeah. Let's think, hmm, let's see. So Prince uh, just, from from a musical perspective, you know, we talk about Michael Jackson being the king of pop, but Prince was the king of music. I mean, everything that he did, composing, writing, playing multiple instruments. I think he did, a, I, I could be wrong, but I believe he composed a, an orchestra, obviously Purple Rain, um, incredible entertainer, just a genius, a musical genius. And in 1987, he was at, you know, I mean, the top of his game. He was on the biggest stage in the world. And Suzanne Vega, who I really enjoyed. She, you know, she was an alt singer at the time. Uh, She had a song called Left of Center that was on the Pretty in Pink soundtrack. And uh, that was, you know, she was starting to make her way, but, you know, Prince was Prince at the time, right? And she was making her way. And she had a song called My Name is Luca. Uh, Again, not going to sing it, but if you know the song, I live on the second floor, that that's, yeah. I do remember that song, yeah. (laughs) Very, very kind of sad song, but incredible song. And uh, Prince heard this song and he was so moved by the song, My Name is Luca, that he actually penned a handwritten note to Suzanne Vega. And in that handwritten note, he said, Dear Suzanne, Luca is the most compelling piece of music I've heard in a long time. There are no words to tell you all the things I feel when I hear it. I thank God for you, Prince. It's pretty awesome. Um, Wow. and, And we know about this because in 2016, when he passed away, Suzanne Vega posted the note on social media to let, I believe, to let people know the kind of guy that Prince was behind the scenes because he would not go look to the media for that stuff. He wasn't the type of guy that was going to say, where's the camera whenever he was doing something good. He just kind of did it. Uh, now, remember, there was no digital means to get this note to her in 1987. He couldn't email it. There wasn't a simple way to get it to her. He had to get it to her or somebody in his entourage. He had to mail it to her. In some way, shape or form, there was an extra step that had to be taken here, which makes it even cooler that he did this. And what did he teach us in this moment? Well, he taught us the difference between rulers and leaders. When rulers get the stage of success, they tend to keep everybody below it. You know, we talked about the unearned versus earned leadership. They keep everybody below the stage because they don't want to be challenged. A lot of times they haven't earned that position, as we talked about before, so that they stand on that stage as a ruler and they want to do what? They want to rule. And ruling involves keeping everybody below you. Leaders share the stage of success. When leaders get that stage of success, they recognize that there are other people out there doing great things as well, and they want to share that stage with them. And not only that, but they will recognize that greatness in others. And that's what he did. He saw her doing something great, and he took the time to let her know that there was room on this stage for her as well. And that's a really valuable lesson for us in leadership, to think about it in the context of that. Once you have that that proverbial stage of leadership, there's enough room for other people up there recognize other people's greatness and then let them know. That's also about being some humility in there and then being genuine about it too. Don't take the time to appreciate those, those levels of greatness and understanding that because how many times have we seen it when a leader jumps in and like, Oh, and by the way, good job on, on staying late last week. Thanks. And then they're running away. Take that time and, and cherish those moments because eventually there's going to be difficult talent challenges coming up and people will be able to rely on those those moments like, okay, I was appreciated here. So this is going to suck, but I can get through that 
to do that. And it's all about being genuine and humble and, and recognizing your team. That's huge. Yeah. And uh, by the way, encouragement doesn't cost a thing. That's the other thing he taught us. Uh, that, that handwritten note, the encouragement that it provided to her. Uh, and you can do that today. And you don't even have to be a leader. There's somebody in your life right now that needs encouragement in your personal life, in your private, in your private life, in your work life. Someone around you needs encouragement. It doesn't cost a thing to encourage somebody. Oh, and and thinking about a, a, like a handwritten note, how often do you, we even get handwritten notes anymore? So it's you, a lost it, art. It, exactly. So that would carry even that much more weight. And like you said, it, it doesn't cost a thing, but what you're going to gain from that is yeah, invaluable. Yeah, agree. Yeah. Incredible. Well, thanks for letting me throw that one out there. I'll get to the, uh, to no. the know, knowing your audience now, the importance of knowing your audience. No, no. Thank you for that. That was a, that's gold. And thank you for taking the time for that. This is that's why we're here. So that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I love Prince. And when I, when I heard that story about his handwritten note, I just, I, I needed to figure out a way to share it and find out how to share it. Hi there. It's Glenn, the voiceover artist. I'm back and you guessed it. If you're hearing me, that means we're at the midpoint of this episode. Do you have a topic that you feel would benefit from emerging leaders? Then send us a note at K at trenchleadership.ca. And if your topic is used on the show, you'll be invited as a special guest host for your episode. Follow Trench Leadership, a podcast from the front on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. And if you feel we've earned it, please help us grow our following by leaving a review and sharing the episodes on your social media platforms. And now, back to the show. The importance of knowing your audience. So this one uh, actually comes from, uh, well, a, I would say probably one of the most famous movie characters from the 80s. He always wanted to do the best for his family. And he always screwed it up. But at the end, ultimately, he and his family always got what they wanted or what he wanted them to have um, at the end of each one of the movies. And that guy's name is Clark Griswold. So <laughs> the Fantastic. lovable knucklehead, right? Yeah, the lovable knucklehead Clark Griswold, who tried to do so many great things for his family and always found a way to screw them up. Just always. Um, so we're going to go to Christmas vacation. And uh, Christmas Vacation, by the way, for those of you that are 80s, uh, we'll say movie buffs, uh, a lot of people don't know that John Hughes was also involved in Christmas Vacation. So it wasn't, he wasn't just The Breakfast Club, 16 Candles, Weird Science, uh, Pretty in Pink, and all of these other classic kind of high school movies, but he also was um, involved with Christmas Vacation and Home Alone. So um, he had quite the, uh, quite the run, um, you could say. And yeah, so yeah. John Hughes, um, I'm sorry. So, so, so Clark Griswold and Christmas vacation. And we all, if you've seen the movie and by the way, if you're big bang theory fans, stands fans of the show, big bang theory, uh, Leonard Hofstetter, the actor who played Leonard Hofstetter was rusty Griswold in Christmas vacation. So just a little uh, note there. And Juliette Lewis was the daughter. She was Audrey. So pretty good cast. I I'm, I'm now looking, rolling my eyes back and imagining it. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. That's amazing. Yeah. Amazing how yeah. people have yeah, where we are now. And then that's incredible. It's, it's cool to see them go back and watch those movies and see if there's anybody, if you can pick anybody out. So uh, Clark at one point in the movie, he is uh, he has his whole family in town, extended family, because what, what does he want to do? He wants to have Christmas at his house. And why does he want to do that? 
because he wants to share a surprise with his extended family. And that surprise is that he's going to put a pool in his backyard based on the Christmas bonus that he's going to receive. Uh, so Christmas Eve comes and uh, the bonus is delivered, but it's not what he thought. It's not what he expected. Uh, so he gets ready to do the unveiling in front of his entire extended family, including Cousin Eddie. And if you haven't seen the vacation movies, Cousin Eddie is, um, let's just say he is slow on the uptake. Uh, I think that's probably the best way to say it. You're being very kind. Yes. <laughs> uh, big heart, huge heart, huge heart, but a little slow on the uptake. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he's delivering this message to everybody and he opens up his bonus check expecting to see the bonus money. And instead he got a uh, annual membership to the jelly of the month club, which as we can all figure is not going to pay for your pool. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, <laughs> so he's already, he's already put the money out for the pool and now he's got this annual membership to the, the jelly of the month club to which cousin Eddie says, Clark, that's the gift. That's the gift that just keeps on giving all the, all the year long. And uh, Clark says, yes, it does, Eddie. Yes, it does. And then he loses it. And he goes on this rant, which I, which I would encourage anybody who hasn't seen it to go on YouTube and look up this rant, go Clark Griswold Christmas rant, and you will find it on YouTube. It's hilarious. And a lot of it I heard was ad-libbed. Uh, but at one point in this rant, he says, uh, because he's not getting his Christmas bonus and he got this jelly of the month club membership, he says to, um, to the whole family, you know what I want? I would like my boss uh, brought from his slumber on Melody Lane with all the other rich people. I want him brought right here with a red bow on him. Now, he doesn't really mean that, okay? He's just upset. He doesn't really want his boss kidnapped, Mr. Shirley, kidnapped uh, and brought to his house on a red bow. But remember Cousin Eddie. Cousin Eddie, slow in the uptake, uh, decides that that's exactly what Clark wants, literally. And he goes and does what? He kidnaps Mr. Shirley from his holiday slumber on Melody Lane with all the other rich people. And he brings them, brings him to Clark's house with a red bow on him. Now, this was not what Clark intended. And of course, the consequences are that the SWAT team busts into Clark's house to arrest everybody for kidnapping Mr. Shirley, uh, which ultimately doesn't happen. Spoiler alert. But what does he teach us here? It's, a, it's really important to know your audience when you're speaking to them. It doesn't matter if that audience is five or 500,000. There are going to be people in that group, in that audience that are going to interpret your message a little bit differently than the person next to them. For a whole host of reasons, by the way, a whole host of reasons why you know somebody, you and I, Simon, may hear the same words out of someone's mouth or the same message and we'll, we may interpret it differently and go do diff different things based on that message. So for all of you marketers out there, communications people and leaders, it's so important to know your audience. You're never going to be perfect, by the way. Uh, if you try to get the perfect message out there, you'll never put a message out into the universe. So you're always going to have some people who are going to interpret it a little bit differently or not as you would expect it. But the best thing you can do from that is learn from it. Learn from what people, how people interpret your message if they don't interpret it the way that you expected them to. Maybe they're telling you something. Maybe they're saying, hey, this message isn't as clear and concise as you thought it was. Or maybe what you thought was a really great message to get people to buy your product or service in reality made them question whether they should buy your product or your service. Um, but ultimately, it comes down to the importance of really knowing your audience. Do that research as much as you can up front 
and understand who you're talking to so that you don't end up with somebody kidnapped in your house and the SWAT team breaking through your windows on Christmas Eve <laughs> to arrest everybody uh, for putting a big red bow on somebody and taking them from their house uh, while they're sleeping. Oh, and you know, I, what I, what I got out of this and something that I, I learned very early on when I was figuring out my leadership journey was that leaders, we have, we have an influence right away. As soon as you're standing in front of a group, even if you're not a leader, if you're a speaker or whatnot, you're influencing that group, how you're standing, what you're saying, how you're saying, what you're saying, that influences how things are being understood. So it's important to remember that you have that influence because a lot of times emerging leaders, you know, especially if you're brand spanking new to a team or whatnot, and it's your first time in any type of leadership position, it's easy to forget that you're not really one of the guys or girls anymore. You are in a position of authority and people are looking to you to, to lead and how you say things and what you're saying really, really matters. So take that into consideration because Clark, Clark was the leader of that family. And like you said, cousin Andy, best of intentions, but very literal in what, what we, what he heard. And he went and got, when he got the boss. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. exactly. And, and you, you brought up a really good point too, about, you know, people looking to you as a leader and there's a great lesson from uh, the movie, the lost boys, which is one of my favorites. And uh, I, 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 my, I mean, listen, I'm, I may be a little biased cause I'm a huge eighties person, but I think it's the best vampire movie of all time. Anytime you have Kiefer Sutherland as the head vampire, you're doing something right. I'm with you hundred uh, percent. I'm from your generation is we're, we're the same generation. So I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. An amazing soundtrack. Great soundtrack as well. Uh, but you know, the, the, the frog brothers who are the ones who actually are the heroes of the movie. Uh, they're two kids that work in their family's comic book store. they are 140 pounds soaking wet combined. They wear army surplus stuff to act like they're military guys. And they're like, you know, these little 14 year old kids, 15 year old kids, and, uh, and they're named after an amphibian, the Frog, Frog Brothers. So they're not going to strike fear in anybody. But they taught us a really valuable lesson because at the end of the day, they actually do solve the, the, the vampire problem in the town. They actually save the town when everybody else doesn't know what to do. And they taught us that problem solvers don't come in a one-size-fits-all package. So also remember that when you're a leader, that there are people inside of your organization who aren't leaders, who may not have the title VP, C-level, whatever it is, director in your, in your company. But opening up the challenges that the business is having to everyone in the business to try to solve the problem, you'd be surprised where those problem solvers are in your organization. And I think too often organizations look to the same people. Well, he's a VP. She's a CEO. He's a director. She's a a EVP of marketing. Those are the people that are supposed to have the answers for us. Well, they can't have all the answers. And so when we open it up beyond those people that have the the title, quote unquote, the title that we all expect to have all the answers, no one has all the answers. That idea of problem solvers don't come in a one size fits all package. It's a real thing. And it helps you identify the leaders of the future, but it also creates an inclusive organization and environment where everybody feels like they can be part of it. And if I have the answer to a problem, but nobody's asking me, am I going to really speak up if I'm, you know, an entry level person, or I'm over here in this group. And, you know, do how many of those people actually stand up and speak up and say, I think I can solve this problem. You have to open it up to them and allow them the opportunity to speak up and to say, I think I can solve this. And then you'd be surprised maybe how quickly you can solve the problems in your organization instead of going to the same old well time and time again, to the same old people, getting the same old stale answers to your problems. 
Oh, and, yeah. and you actually talked, spoke to it a little bit earlier. If, if you're the leader in a position and you think you have all the answers, that's arrogance. Time to move yeah. on to something else. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Yeah, it, 100%. It's, and it's a dangerous spot. And a lot of times, uh, one of the themes I, I say quite often is people don't even realize that in the moment they're becoming arrogant or they're becoming complacent or whatever that might be in the moment. It's very hard to see that. And if people are telling you that there's probably a reason why, or pay attention again, know your audience when you're yeah. talking and everyone's shoulders slump, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And, and, and open it up having, and when we talk about inclusivity, we talk about a lot of different things inside of organizations, but the one area that I think we miss sometimes is that idea of problem solvers and opening up those challenges of the business to everybody. If you got a solution, if I run a business and the you know data entry person who's got two years of experience can help me solve a problem that my VPs can't, why would I not open it up to everybody to find out? It can be a little more challenging in some people's minds to, to trust others to have those answers. I think that's what I'm trying to get at. Oh, I, I'm yeah. the boss. There's an expectation on myself to, to have those answers. And so if I don't, and then I'm going to other people, that shows a sense of weakness or that, that I don't, or inability and, oh, that's a problem. Nah, and it turns into this big spiral ball when in fact, people just want to be heard and, and, you know, have those, those, their solutions put out there. Yeah. Yeah. And you can, you know, you can always tell your team, it's not, it's, it's, it's a good thing to tell your team that you don't have all the answers. I think that's what people want to hear honesty and transparency from their leadership. You know, that you don't have all the answers. Your job as a leader is to protect your team. And that's a whole nother thing, you know, Axel Foley and Beverly Hills cop protecting, uh, protecting his team and, you know, taking responsibility for something that, that, that wasn't his fault, but he, he took those slings and arrows. Your, your job as a leader is to protect that team at any cost. And that means even sacrificing yourself if you have to. And if your team knows that you're willing to do that, they will go to bat for you. So telling them that you don't have all the answers, I think that's something that you should say right up front. And then telling them also that, hey, guys, listen, and gals, listen, I don't have all the answers, but I will tell you this. No matter what happens in our department, no matter what happens with our organization, I will always protect you. That's my job. My job is to make sure that anything that happens in this department in a negative way, anything that comes back to us where somebody says, you know, why aren't we doing this? Or why are you doing that? Or how did this happen? I want you guys to take chances. All of you take chances. I will take the slings and arrows. That's my job. And so I think if you, if you put it in that context, hopefully your team will, you know, it'll resonate with them and they'll realize they do have somebody that's in their corner. I completely agree with you. And that's how you build that, that deep team cohesion that is so valuable when, when teams are experiencing difficult times. Yeah. Excellent. So that was an Axel Foley one. Um, Beverly Hills Cop 4, by the way, uh, Netflix is producing it with Eddie Murphy as Axel Foley. Oh, that's, uh, I, I'm, I'm super I'm excited. I can't, I can't wait. Oh, I'm, I'm excited for that too. That'll be fantastic. <laughs> I just hope they bring back the Neutron dance. I hope they bring back a couple of the, a couple of the songs in the soundtrack. <laughs> So too, I'm sure we'll see something, maybe a banana in a, in a muffler again or something. Oh, along yeah. Those yeah. <laughs> By the way, you know that that, uh, that was actually Damon Wayans, um, who was at working at the buffet in the first Beverly Hills cop. Well, I'm going to have to go back and watch that tonight. Yeah. Then that will be fantastic. I love yeah. it. Oh, cool. I, it's always amazing to see how those, those things go forward through the years. Huh, interesting. hundred percent. Yeah. Excellent. 
Well, listen, this has been really, really great. We've talked about a lot of points. We've talked about how the ways emerging leaders can move forward and, and understand their audience and understand the workplace culture and whatnot. So this seems like a good way to segue into the, the lightning round. What do you think? Sounds great. I'm down. Excellent. So I always tell everyone really quickly. So folks, if you haven't heard the, an episode before, I always do a five leadership related questions. I usually send an outline ahead, ahead of time to the guest but I do not send them the five questions. So it is a bit of a surprise for them and that's okay because honestly, it's, it's funny for me. You ready to go, Chris? I'm ready. Let's do yeah. it. Let's do this. Okay. On the, hot so, seat. on the hot seat. I'm ready. Oh, you're ready to go. You got this. Question number one. In one minute, describe your perfect leader. Okay. Well, it just took me 30 minutes to do it. So uh, let's see in one minute. <laughs> um, I would say a honest, transparent, um, somebody who's honest, transparent, um, has the experience, can show the, you know, the credibility behind why they're a leader, as we talked about before, uh, and that trusts their team. I think that's really important. Honesty, transparency, and trust. Uh, Spicoli, Jeff Spicoli taught us a really valuable lesson in Fast Times when he was asked the question of why he's always late to class, and he said, I don't know. And uh, those are three words that I don't think enough people use. And if I hear a leader say that, um, it says, you know, they say, I don't know, but let me get the answer for you. Let me find out for you. To me, that's a sign of strength and confidence and character, which I look for in leaders. Uh, whereas in the past, we've talked about it as being weakness or vulnerability to say, I don't know. What do you mean? You don't know all the answers. We just talked about that. Not a, no one has all the answers. I mean, if you do, like in the words of the church lady, isn't that special? But for the rest of us, you know, we've always, we've been asked a question we don't know the answer to. So I look for, you know, honesty, transparency, trust. And that means admitting when you don't know as a leader, it's okay. Um, and then, you know, the strength and confidence and, and protecting the team, knowing that I have a leader who's going to protect myself and my teammates. Question number two, cup half full or cup half empty? Always cup half full, I think. I've been this third question. I've been waiting to ask you this since we started talking. If your leadership style was a famous actor, who is it and why? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Jeez. Um, are we talking about an eighties actor or, you know, somebody that was kind of, it, it's up to you. Um, wow. I'm going to, you know what? Okay. So I'm actually going to use my favorite likely my favorite actor of all time. And that's Patrick Swayze. Uh, and I'm going to say that because if you look at his roles, he, he really, his roles ran the gamut from, uh, you know, tough leader to compassionate. And so as you can see that, I mean, the difference in the character that's in red Dawn compared to ghost, um, totally different, but both have qualities of leaders um, that you need. You need compassion and you need toughness, which, you know, we just talked about, um, also I think, you know, there's great, he was a great leader in roadhouse, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. So <laughs> <you know, laughs> how do we know when it's time not to be nice? I'll let you know. Yep. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think because of the roles that he had, and of course my, 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 my rescue, uh, my pit mix Bodie, he's named Bodie after Patrick Swayze's character from point break. So I'd have to say Patrick Swayze. Question number four, what would you like to improve about your leadership style? I think for me, I would say that I, I, I could be more attentive um, to the needs of my team members individually. So you had mentioned it earlier, we get into work and we kind of think about what has to be done from a work perspective, but what also has to be done from a human perspective. 
And that's something that I feel like I've gotten a lot better at over the years, just because you do, you evolve with your experience. Uh, but I, I would say a lot more attentive would be a good quality that I could work on a little more. And the final question, what do you think is your leadership strength? Uh, I would say, you know, these are, these are two, um, I think my leadership strength, I, I don't know if it's a strength, but I'll tell you what I'm, I'm proudest or most proud of. The, the people over the last, we'll call it 15 to 17 years that I've hired and given their, them their first job or maybe their second job after just a couple of years out of school and watching them grow into VPs of marketing and chief marketing officers and heads of marketing, or if they went in a completely different direction, they're a leader in another part of the industry, another industry or another um, dynamic inside of an organization, but seeing their evolution and seeing them grow is, makes me really proud. And I hope I like to think that I had a little small part in it. If nothing else, I gave them an opportunity to um, have a, a job. And then I gave them the leeway to um, bring them. I brought, I tend to bring people in when I wouldn't say they're not ready yet, but I like to bring people in and give them experience on in projects that they wouldn't get anywhere else. So if you have three years of experience, you know, do they bring you into the marketing strategy meeting? Probably not, but I would, because I, I want you to see how it works. I want you to understand, and you may have some great input by the way. So I, I think that's what I'm most proud of. I would say is seeing how many people I hired actually move on to leadership roles, which is really cool and exciting. Perfect. That's it. That was the lightning round. That's not so bad. No, no, no we problem. could, we could, we could do a couple. Uh, I could get, I could throw a couple of eighties movies out that I would encourage people to see that aren't kind of the standards. Uh, you know what? The next thing I was about to say was, so that's pretty much the meat and potatoes of what we've got going on for, on for this episode. I had two other points. What else would you like to say to people and how can people find you? Okay, great. So I, that's, I appreciate it. So I want to just really quickly touch on why 80s pop culture. I think it's really important for people to kind of understand where this comes from. And there's really, um, because if you look at today, we're 42, almost 42 years past 1980. We're well past what they call the nostalgia cycle for the decade, but it's getting stronger and stronger. We're seeing more 80s pop culture in our um, music, in our television, in our movies, and it, it doesn't seem to be slowing down. And so I think there's a couple of reasons for that. First off, I look at 80s pop culture and I say that I feel like it was like a glitter bomb that somebody threw against the wall and it exploded with all of these wonderful colors. And all those wonderful colors were all the different genres of music and movies and things. We think about the 80s kind of really introducing us to, in music, hip hop, not just hip hop, not just kind of one genre, one piece of hip hop, but all these different splinter genres that came out of it. And then you look at like how heavy metal. Well, metal was kind of Black Sabbath in the late 70s. And all of a sudden, it kind of exploded in the 80s. And all of this different, all of this different music came out from metal. And we had, you know, punk rock, and we had all of these, all these really interesting genres, which is why we had all these little clicks inside of high schools. There was something for everybody. And it was this glitter bomb. And then you look at movies, romantic comedies, they were around before the 80s. But the rom-com was really defined in the 80s with all of these movies, the coming of age movies, we talk about fast times, those high school coming of age movies, so many of those, those genres that really maybe existed on the periphery and then exploded in the 80s. Uh, I, I challenge people to go to any top 40 of any month of any week of any year in the 80s. Just pick up June, the second week of June, 1986. Go look at the top 40 uh, music. 
the top 10 or 15, you're going to see Debbie Gibson next to Kenny Rogers, next to Depeche Mode, next to LL Cool J, next to Motley Crue. There is literally something for everyone, which is why I think 80s pop culture is still resonating today. And I think the second thing is that it was the last decade where our pop culture wasn't manufactured. They literally, not to be cliche, but they were literally throwing things against the wall to see what would stick. And we were telling them what we enjoyed, and then they would make more of it. Now there's so much money being invested in, a, in pop culture before it even hits the market that we have to like it. They're going to pound us over the head because they got to make that $95 million back. And there was, there was very little international box office. There wasn't streaming. There were, we, you, your movie came out, you had the box office, you had a video store if you were lucky, and then maybe HBO if you were really lucky. So you had to tell a great story. You had to have great characters in order for people to care about what you were putting out there. So I think for those reasons, that's why 80s pop culture is still resonating today. And of course, because you know I absolutely love 80s pop culture and I'm a child of the 80s. I was 10 years old in 1980. So I tell everybody, everything I did for the first time, good, bad, or indifferent was in the 80s uh, from 10 to 19. So that's, that's, that's why 80s pop culture. And I'll just give a throw a few movies out there that you may not have seen from the 80s that I would highly encourage. Uh, the first one is Vision Quest. It's a fantastic sports movie with Matthew Modine, a wrestling movie, which you don't see many of. And for those of you out there that had a huge crush on Jake Ryan from 16 Candles, well, Jake is also in the movie Vision Quest. He plays Matthew Modine, Loudon Swain, plays his best friend. Vision Quest would be one. Three O'Clock High is another incredibly underrated uh, movie. It's a day in the life of a kid in a school supply store. The bully who has just moved into their school because he's been expelled says he's going to fight the kid at the end of the day and there's nothing he can do about it. And the entire movie is this kid trying to get out of the fight the entire day. It's, a, it's, it's just a, uh, a fantastic <laughs> movie. And then one other movie I'll throw out there. Well, two others. One is Lucas, which is great. If you like Corey Haim, uh, this was Corey Haim's heyday. Also had Charlie Sheen. Uh, there was a couple of other people in this movie as well. Great movie, way ahead of its time about bullying. Um, really, really important lessons, life lessons in the movie Lucas. So I would I would highly, highly recommend that one. And then if you haven't seen The Explorers, I would also recommend that one. It's a great little sci-fi movie. Uh, the Explorers, I believe, sometimes I get these wrong because I have so much running around in my head, but I'm pretty sure it's River Phoenix, um, which, you know, obviously incredible short career, but an incredible one. Uh, and then stand by me. If you haven't seen stand by me, um, I don't know what you're doing. Go see it. It's yeah, stand by me. That, that's a staple. Yeah. It's, it's a staple, but you'd be surprised. And a lot of people don't know that, that, that that's a Stephen King story. Uh, it was actually called the body and it was a short story uh, that he put into one of his, uh, I think it was four seasons books. Um, you know, he's, he's known for his horror, but in actuality, stand by me, Shawshank Redemption and the green mile are probably his three best and they're not horror. So there you go. Oh, Kiefer Sutherland and Stand By Me Too. Never go wrong with Kiefer Sutherland. Exactly. Exactly. No, that's fantastic. One of the movies that sticks out for me from the 80s is is Taps. Yes. That's intense, man. That's, that's, you got to be prepared for that one. Oh, yeah. The first time I saw it, I was like, oh, Tom Cruise's first big motion picture movie. All right, I'll give that a shot. And there's all kinds of big names in that. And uh, Timothy Hutton. Yeah, Timothy Hutton's a big one there. And and I, so just to get people that aren't, aren't aware of that one. So taps is it's based, it's based off of a military Academy in the United States and it's about to close. And the students, the 
the military cadets, they absolutely love the commandant and this has been their way of life for, for a number of years. So they take over the, they, with, with the weaponry that they've got at the school, they take over the school and there's this armed conflict and the whole thing goes from there. You can imagine it. Uh, there's a lot about a lot in that movie. Yeah. It's, it's intense. Yeah. Yep, and I'd be remiss not to mention uh, Strange Brew. I, oh. I got to mention it. So. Of course, of course. <laughs> I, mean, I got to mention it. Fantastic. Well, th- th- thanks for all of that. And I am curious, where can people find you if they if they want to engage with you? How, where can we find you? I appreciate that. So yeah, so I have a website, chrisclues.com, C-H-R-I-S-C-L-E-W-S.com. That's where you can find a lot of information on me, both my speaking and my writing as well. There's videos there of some of the speaking gigs that I've done, uh, you know, pieces of them, of course, um, YouTube videos that I've done with some of the lessons that we talked about today, where I expand a little bit more on those lessons as well. And uh, my books are on Amazon, what 80s pop culture teaches us about today's workplace. There are two, the yellow cover and the black cover. I would uh, recommend the black cover. The yellow cover was me cutting my teeth. Uh, 80 pages. It's kind of a short read. I say, if you're a bathroom reader, it's four trips to the bathroom. You're probably done. Uh, the black cover is a much deeper dive into 10 more movies, uh, 220 pages compared to 80. It's just, a, I just think it's a better book. Um, just my, my opinion as the person who wrote both of them, but uh, that's where they are on Amazon. And you can also find them digitally on, uh, I believe barnesandnoble.com and Google play and all others, all other digital, uh, all the uh, uh, digital ways to find the book online. Uh, but Amazon is where the hard copies are. And if you want to hire me to speak, uh, I would love that, of course. Again, chrisclues.com, and you can uh, find all of my contact information there. Fantastic. Well, I will make sure to have uh, links to all the different books, your website, and your speaking engagement area. I'll have all of that in the show notes, and hopefully this will generate some some more in- interest in business for you. I'm, I'm quite confident the content in here has been very strong and powerful. Thank you very much for that. Well, again, Simon, thank you so much for the megaphone. It's really great. I mean, the independent podcasters are, uh, are they're, they're, they are what makes it happen for all of us today, allows um, each of us to have a voice uh, that even 15 years ago we didn't have. And so it's huge. And I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Take care of yourself and we'll talk soon. All right. Stay rad, everybody. Well, that's a wrap from the front. In this episode, we were reminded about the importance of knowing our audience being ever mindful of the immediate influence emerging leaders possess. Chris also provided some 80s examples of how fostering a workplace culture of inclusivity, honesty, and humility will garner a deep and long-lasting feeling of cohesion within a leader's team. Thanks for tuning in, and remember, leadership without passion limits the depth of your vision. So, how was the episode? Were you engaged? Did you finish the episode with a piece of leadership ammunition to help you lead from the trenches? Was this episode relevant and helpful? If so, never miss an episode by following us on all of your favorite podcast feeds. While you're there, and if you feel it's merited, please consider leaving an episode review. If the episode missed its mark, we need your help to refine the topic. So reach out and let us know how we can improve the show for you and all of our listeners. Be sure to join us next week with your host, Simon Cardinal, for another episode of Trench Leadership, a podcast from the front. A proud supporter of the Concussion Legacy Foundation and Project Enlist. Episodes produced by iGlen Studios. Music provided by Ashamal of Music. <laughs>